During this pandemic, we've been overwhelmed with reports about Asian people, especially East Asians, being attacked in broad daylight. In the first year of the pandemic, I remember walking down the street in Berlin with a Malaysian Chinese friend and some kid walked towards us. And as he got closer, he put up his fist and it looked like he was going in to punch her. But at the very last moment, he swerved his arm above her head and laughed as he walked away. That was the first time I'd witnessed the real physical threat of being visibly Chinese in this pandemic. It was no longer the annoying konnichiwa or ni hao that gets shouted at my Chinese friends. So while most of us Asians living overseas, we brace ourselves for some level of, I don't know, inequality and, and racism, I don't think that violence or living in fear of our safety was something we bargained for when we decided to leave our home countries. It's just a really exhausting feeling to always step out of the house and the first thing that strikes you instead of the cold wind is fear. You go on the train and people are looking at you and your first thought is, is it because I'm Chinese? And then you walk along the streets and people are looking, oh, must be because I'm Chinese. Welcome to Asia is Not a Country, where we explore the multitudes and struggles of the Asian experience overseas and at home. I'm your host, Natalina Pereira, and it's dawned on me that I haven't shared the reason I moved to Berlin on the show. Here's the TLDR. I moved to Berlin for love. Basically, I met a German guy back when I was in university, and after a very long time of like flying across the ocean, we decided to live together for a change. And though I visited Germany for about five years before moving over, I still experience my fair share of cultural shocks every day. While most Asians I've met in Berlin and have interviewed on the show have had to deal with the shift from being a majority back home to a minority in the West, I don't think that shift was as drastic for me. Yes, I'm aware that I'm speaking from a position of privilege because people in Germany tend to forget that Asia is not just East Asia. So to them, I'm not Asian because I don't conform to their image of an Asian woman. And I've had to explain far too many times to people that Singapore is not part of China, first of all, but also that my family's Catholic and my last name, Pereira, people tend to assume I'm Portuguese or from South America. So I've thought a lot about how if you've grown up in a country where you're the majority race or ethnicity, and then you move to a foreign land, especially in a white majority country, becoming a minority can be a very jarring and almost disorienting experience. And yes, the racism you face in this new country is real and affecting. And, you know, if you're a self-aware and reflective person, you might ask yourself, how can a few instances in my new home compare to the systemic and structural discrimination minority communities in your home country have had to struggle with? How do you then reconcile with the guilt of becoming, of being part of the problem at home and now being on the receiving end in your adopted home? 
So I'm really interested in hearing about this change of perspective for someone with majority privilege back home, who then goes to a foreign land, is a minority, and becomes a target of racism, which obviously is made worse by this pandemic. And also, if you're an Asian woman living in a majority white city surrounded by men, that's that's a lot. And it's a really complicated space to to be in. And today, my guests Alison Tan and I will try to approach the topic. I spoke to Alison in late 2021 when she was still living in London, and I first wanted to find out if moving to the UK has made her more aware of her ethnicity and how she's perceived in public. Funnily enough, um, a few days ago we had a workshop with what you would call a branding consultant here in the UK and he got us to write our own short bios and this was the first time I had written in my bio that Alison Tan is a Chinese Singaporean artist. Of course in Singapore it's something that I would never have included in my bio because it's such a huge blind spot. We are so used to the people we live with, the context that we live in, that we assume that people would know that, oh, Tan is a Chinese surname. But I am also very mindful of when I first got here, initially I would start my introduction as, hi, my name is Alison, I'm from Singapore. And I would never say that I'm Chinese. I have no idea why even till now. But now I am I think, more comfortable with saying that. So I would say, hi, I'm Alison. I'm Chinese-Singaporean. Just to give our listeners context if they don't know much about Singapore. So Singapore is made up of three main and three main racial groups. And we have something called other. We, we literally label people who are not Chinese, Malay or Indian others. That's a whole other um, episode, I guess. It's a very long conversation to get into. But with the racial demographics in, in Singapore... Around 75-76% of the population are Chinese Singaporeans. These could be second-generation, third-generation Chinese Singaporeans. And that's, I guess, also why Alison said it's not something you think about, especially as a Chinese person moving in Singapore. It's very easy to identify who's, who's Chinese based on the way they look or on their last names. But talking about, about being a majority in Singapore, I wonder, in deciding to move to London... What were you prepared to experience as you moved from being a majority to obviously a minority in London? Before I came here, I was very aware that there is quite a huge Singaporean population in London. I mean, we were colonised and so I think in many ways, London is quite similar to Singapore in terms of laws, red tape, structure, the way cities are being planned... And so I think that's a familiarity that a lot of Singaporeans lean towards before they move here. So that was something that I think was quite comforting before coming over. But of course, I chose to come here in the middle of lockdown, in the middle of an ongoing pandemic. And I was very aware that me as a Chinese person, and of course my skin colour, is something that is going to be extremely visible when I come here. No one wants to feel this way, but I was almost stealing myself for racism. I've always heard about the micro-racism that can occur, but I think I was preparing myself for something much more violent 
And so that was something that was always at the back of my head before I moved here. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more about like how you were stealing yourself? So did you have any friends who shared personal experiences of racism when they lived in Europe or just like getting content and getting all this information or reading articles online? What what exactly were you prepping yourself for? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> in some very weird, morbid way, I didn't have to do the research, right? Because it was always in the news. It was always in the news about how Chinese were being attacked how there were all these racist attacks overseas and it really feeds into your psyche. At the same time, I spoke to a few friends who were in the same school as I was, who went to Rose Preferred College and wanted to find out about their experiences. So I have this whole issue with micro-racism as a term. I don't know if you can put it on a spectrum Racism is racism, that's clear. And when people say micro, it's almost as if, yeah, it's a small thing, it's fine. I can just brush it aside. But you cannot brush it aside. So when they tell me that, oh yeah, there are some micro-racism, da-da-da-da-da, I feel like they are reducing their own experience, which is something that I refuse to do when I'm here. Racism is racism, there is no way around it. But of course, again, when I experience all that here, Immediately, I would think about what I have done in Singapore and whether I have been complicit in any acts of racism, whether subconscious or not. So that was my experience digging into that whole identity of being a majority in Singapore and coming to the UK and being a minority. And not just being a minority, but being a very, very visible minority. I remember the day the Atlanta shootings happened. The next day, it was ironically a sunny day in London and I had went to the park for a walk and I had never felt more visible. And every Chinese woman I saw, we were looking at each other and it was clear what we were saying with our eyes because we had masks on. It was, it was like, I see you amongst the city of people who might not see you, I see you. And that was something that made me feel very heavy but light at the same time, which is something that I don't think I experienced in Singapore in that context. So these are things which have left a mark. I'm wondering if you would want to go into what you mentioned before about being complicit in racism in Singapore. I I don't know if everyone will generally understand what happens in Singapore. So I think if you're Chinese in Singapore, you get away with a certain level of privilege, right? Whereas if you are Malay or Indian, there is a lot of systemic, structural, everyday racism that people have to go through. And I, I can say this as also a half Indian person who is not classified as Chinese because of a lot of different reasons, but I don't look Chinese, right? That That's the main thing. I don't look Chinese, so I'm not Chinese. And I wonder if maybe you want to talk about how you feel you were complicit in racism or how what that process was for you digging through all um, your interactions in the past. So I came from a Chinese-speaking family, and I don't think I learned English until I was about four or five. and And then 
I went to a Christian primary school. So once again, it was maybe 95% Chinese. And then I went to a Chinese secondary school, a SEP school, uh, 100% Chinese. And then I went to a junior college, which offered Chinese as an A-level subject. And so once mm-hmm. again... But maybe just before, if I was going to interrupt you, like maybe we could explain what SEP schools are. So SEP schools stands for Special Assistance Plan, which is something that the government dreamt up years ago because they wanted to promote Chinese language, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these schools get, in a way, special autonomy. They're not autonomous, but they get more funding and more support. And of course, you would need a certain level of academic excellence to go to these schools. And so you can imagine what sort of people would go to schools like that. They would most probably be middle class. They would be Chinese. There might be someone who's non-Chinese, but who decided to take up Chinese as a mother tongue in school because of reasons that are very, very often motivated by a long-term forward-looking vision that their parents had, which is often due to being oppressed and feeling like they want their child. And, and also, yeah. yeah but I think ahead. also pra- pragmatic, right? For example, my mom's Chinese and my dad's Indian. And the reason my brothers and I learned Mandarin in school is because my parents just knew if they learn Mandarin, they will be more successful in life. They would have more privileges in life and it'll be easier for them to have a good life and be successful in Singapore. It, it, I guess that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So please yeah. cut out my very bad explanation because yours is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a girl in, in my secondary school who had two Indian parents and she spoke one of the best Mandarin even amongst my Chinese friends, which I thought was... Like, wow, you know, I've never asked the story behind why eventually did she choose Chinese as a mother tongue. But that was always a curiosity for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's just what Singapore forces you to do in a way that the sociopolitical climate is designed and created. Mm-hmm. I think that's just what a lot of people have had to do. Maybe we can go back to how you felt like complicit in, mm. maybe complicit in racism. Mm, yeah, so so then when I went to uni, I think that was the possibly the first time I was exposed to people from different cultures. And that was really late on, later on in life. And I remember asking, telling a friend, and he was Malay, and I had said to this friend, I said, oh, you are my first Malay friend. And at that time, I had no idea what this meant. And it was only many, many years later that he told me that he was actually quite offended and I apologised and I asked why because it is a fact that at that time I felt that, oh, you know, um, I do believe that you are special, you're my first Malay friend. And he said that, why would you choose to mark anyone like that? Why would you choose to mark your friends according to their race? And that became such a huge awakening for me so that was the first time that happened. I don't know if it's obvious here, but I, I really flourish and I'm very, very happy speaking Mandarin. 
And so whenever I have to speak English, it is a struggle, especially when I was a lot younger. And so I would always seek out environments where I could be comfortable, where it's majority, if not all, Chinese. I can code switch between both languages. I can be easily understood and I would be very comfortable. But because of that, I have completely omitted how uncomfortable other people can be and how other people try so hard to seek out spaces that they feel safe and comfortable in. And so that's something that I also feel a bit complicit. Yeah. And thinking about that and what you've encountered uh, so far in London, how, how different was your experience in London in, in terms of what you expected? And how, how did you reconcile this, this? I guess you have a bit of guilt, right? I, I don't know how else to, to put it, but it seems like you have a bit of, of guilt from being this majority and having these privileges and not needing to think about race in your everyday life in Singapore, how has that affected you living in London? Mm. I think there are multiple factors. When I first got to London, I did not want to be the first person in the room to speak. A huge part of that might also have been because I came from a leadership position in Singapore. I am co-artistic director of The Finger Players, which is a company that specialises in puppetry in Singapore. As compared to my course mates, I would have had a lot more experience in the professional industry. Also because I'm Chinese, I didn't want to be heard in the room. I was very aware of how my voice sounded in the space. And I did not like that. For the first three months, we had to do singing classes and my singing teacher at that time she said that I had a really high larynx and I was not using my resonator something was wrong and she recommended I go to a physiotherapist to get myself sorted out so I went and my physiotherapist who's Egyptian (laughs) she said that she experienced the same thing as me when she first came to London and she said that I had lost the use of my resonators because I was so keen on shutting myself out that I had completely forgotten to use my voice. It's a really similar process that actors who pick up a new accent on the West End experience, because their their tongue and everything here in the voice box is trying to shift everything from your nasal cavity to your vocal cavity to your chest is gradually shifting to accommodate for the new accent. And therefore you are learning how to speak again. So that was the first thing that really affected me because all my life, I have never felt like that before. So when that was brought up to me, then I would begin to think about, oh, how, how do my friends in Singapore feel when they come into a space and they know immediately that they are the minority? Would they feel a similar discomfort hearing their voice be heard in a space? And have I, as a person of majority, created an embracing enough space for their voice to be heard and be valued? So those are some of the thoughts that I had when I came here. 
which thinking about what you just said, having lost your resonance, this quality to having a full voice and you didn't feel like a full person, I guess, right? You felt, yeah. And I'm just, um, I wonder what you did to, to feel better to take care of yourself because I think it can be so tough, Alison, to like keep thinking, oh, but what, was I complicit? Was I part of the, the problem in Singapore? And I don't know, did you take care of yourself? Did you also acknowledge the the change and the shift that you were experiencing? Because it's one thing to be a Chinese person, right? But I think you also have, um, there's intersectionality in your in your experience. You're also a woman living in London. You know, you're not just a Chinese person, not a Chinese man, because I think that's different. But being Chinese and being a woman living in London and knowing how safe Singapore is in as a country in general, did you move differently in London when you were out and about? Oh, yeah. So I think that's something that... Yeah. I mean, the long and short of it is I would not move. <laughs> I would just stay at home unless I had to go to school. <laughs> when I first got there, it was in the middle of winter and we classes would end at 5pm most of the time. But there was one day we ended at 6. And so by the time I got home, it would be dark, like completely dark. And on some days, I would get my partner to pick me up from train station. Because there was once, I thought I could just walk home by myself. Because I stay near London Bridge. I would cross the bridge to get to my house. And in London, people outdoors don't wear a mask. Very few. Maybe 10 to 20% um, of Londoners wear a mask. And of course, I would wear a mask. And that day, on my way home there was a cyclist who essentially spat on me. I mean, he spat on my foot, I think because he was rushing past and, you know, he couldn't aim properly, maybe. I have no idea. Um, and then he shouted, there is no COVID. And at that time, I wasn't shaken or anything. I was quite blasé about it. I was like, oh, okay. So it's, it's happening now. It's starting now. And I felt that I did not, I did not feel unsafe. Because he was on a, on a bicycle, he would just ride past me. He's not going to come and, and attack me or anything. Um, but a few weeks later, once again, it was late. I was on my way home. I was wearing a mask. And I think at that time, it was a few days before what they call here Freedom Day. Which is... July something. Yeah. What was the date? July 17th, I want to say. I forgot, which is when all restrictions, or most restrictions were lifted. And so people were on the cusp of going full on crazy. And I was on my way home and this man just came over and just grabbed me by the arm and just shouted in my face, take your mask off, baby, take your mask off. So ever since then, I made sure my partner would always pick me up. I had so much fear going anywhere alone, especially when it was dark. I always felt like people were watching me. Even if I wore a mask, I felt like I was drawing attention to myself. And when I don't wear a mask, it's almost even worse. So I was in a situation where I, I feel like I can't win either way. And this might just be a, a sort of weird fashion thing. Because in Singapore, I'm always in black because it's just a preference. But when I came here and I didn't bring enough clothes, I had to start buying clothes um, from like charity shops or whatever. And I would always make sure I buy really muted colours because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. 
because that time when I was groped by that man, I was in the yo mama batik kimono, like top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so when that happened, of course I thought, was it because of what I was wearing? Was it because I looked... <sighs> I don't know. Alison, I'm sorry. This is like also talking about victim blaming, right? Like I know. now you're going into like, oh, I, I, I know this I is just so want bad. to stop I, you there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I thought about that, but I thought about that. Yeah. So now my, my lovely kimono top is now hiding my closet because I just don't dare to wear it. I just don't. The biggest irony is before... Before I came here, I had a friend who was in Edinburgh doing his master's and he told me, you know, it would be good to bring a few pieces of clothing that represent who you are as a Singaporean. Because if there are conferences or workshops, you want to be able to present yourself outwardly as that. And so that was when I thought, oh, what can I bring over from Singapore that is not too dramatic? I can't bring a teapot and turn up at a workshop. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to look at all these like local brands. I, I brought a few pieces, but now they are just sitting in the closet. It's just a really exhausting feeling to always step out of the house. And the first thing that strikes you instead of the cold wind is fear. You go on the train and people are looking at you. And your first thought is, is it because I'm Chinese? And then you walk along the streets and people are looking, oh, must be because I'm Chinese. And literally the only place where I feel safe is when I go into a Chinese supermarket. <laughs> because, because it's just an environment where I feel safe in. And I feel this is such a bad, I don't know, judgment, but I feel that people, white people who go to Asian supermarkets are there because they genuinely are curious and passionate about the cuisine, and so they would not have any negative thoughts towards me. You know? Yeah. Just talking about traditional clothes, I have a Tsipao top that I almost never wear in Berlin. It's for two reasons. First, because I feel like if I wear that, if Chinese people see me wearing that, they'll be like, "Who is this random like person wearing, wearing my wearing my like tea pao?" Because that's what I think when I see honestly when I see white people wearing chongsams or like tea pao or chongsam top. I'm like, "Excuse me, my culture is not your costume. Why are you wearing that?" So I don't want to be that person, even though I'm Chinese and I I don't look Chinese and I'm very very afraid of people thinking like this random ambiguous looking person is wearing uh, a chongsam or a chongsam top but I also think that if I wear that I feel like I'm a bit of a target to white people who then think oh then she's Asian I kind of get where, where you're coming from but I'm really so sorry that you you've had to experience no I'm so really sorry that you can't things. wear a teapot in Berlin because <laughs> I look great in it you know I think I look great in it yeah I've seen you wear a teapot didn't you wear that for your wedding I did. I also wore a teapot for my wedding, yeah. Yeah. But that was in the comfort of people who knew me. I don't know if you do this when you travel around Europe. I do it when I go to very small towns in Germany for holiday. I'm always counting the number of Asian or Chinese people that I see. Even if I go to a house party when house parties were a thing in, in Berlin, I'm always like, okay, two Asian people. Okay, I'm the third Asian person. Oh, I'm the only Asian person. I did this once at a party. 
And this friend of mine was like, oh, please, could you please stop that? You do that all the time wherever you go. Stop counting the number of Asian people you're in Germany now. Just get used to the fact that this is a white country. And it was so easy for him to say that because that's not his experience. If I am the only Asian person in this place, I'm going to move around so much more differently. I'm going to be aware of what I say, what I do, how I come across. Um, and and that I think that stuck with me so much, but I can't undo it. Right? I've done it in Singapore as well. In the classroom, I'm like, okay, I'm the only half Indian, half Chinese girl in this class, or I'm the only Indian girl. It just is so natural for me to mm-hmm. do that. I think it's almost mm-hmm. survival instinct. I don't know. Okay, I'm just so annoyed by your friend, even though I don't know him, but also because he's a dude. And like, of course, historically, you have not been attacked. You have just breezed through fucking life and you have the the cheek to say that to people. That's just like, what? Yeah, that really caught me off guard. And I, because he was a friend that I've known for so long, I had nothing to say. And it was just so shocking for someone to say that. Someone I know and someone who knows me to say that to my face. And I, yeah. Alison, I know you wrote a play about being a minority in London. Um, and I wonder if you, you would want to share a little bit about what that is and what the experience was for you and, and why you wrote that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it was for, it was for a module, um, a performative writing module. And our tutor, key sort of research methodology was that find an interest, an area of inquiry, and then just dig deep into it and see what comes up, see how that informs you and shifts you and moves you, and then see what comes out of that. So at that time, I started with an area of disturbance, something unsettling, and what was affecting me in a very profound way was racism. The work that influenced most of my writing and research was this book by Angela Saini called Superior, in which she does a really scientific deep dive into how racism is so embedded and it's been so embedded in scientific literature, in your genes, and how that has been weaponized against minority people. Another incident that really mm, shifted my perception about the work was when I went to Bath, there was a museum which is touted as the biggest collection of East Asian artefacts in the UK. And it was opened by this private collector who is English, who is white, who has worked in Hong Kong for many, many years and who was very, very fascinated and had, I guess, what he would call a true passion for East Asian artefacts. So I went to the museum and there were all these East Asian artefacts laid out in glass cases, pretty skim write-up. Some pieces were placed in a very haphazard manner, under a fireplace, on a table, kind of vibe. I remember feeling such a visceral response 
almost as if, because I'm Buddhist, right? So it almost felt like the little Buddha statuettes in the glass cases were like crying and saying, save me, save me. And I was reminded of a chapter in Angela Saini's book about human zoos, which I think was started in Paris or Berlin. I think Paris for the World Exhibition. Yeah, so started in Paris and people would go to these human zoos and and essentially watch how people live. And I thought that was exactly how I felt being here. And of course, this is nothing on all my friends who are English or who are white. But I've always felt like there was this fascination coming from them whenever I spoke about my culture. Like, oh, you know, this is hot pot. And hot pot, you know, started because Chinese, da-da-da-da-da, New Year, da-da-da-da-da, reunion, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah. And it, there would always be this, wow, which is great. But at the same time, I was also very aware of how I felt like I was almost becoming a, weirdly a sort of spokesperson slash like living exhibit for all my friends. And... It was also a case of, I would rather it be me than be a white person who has a fascination and passion for East Asian artifacts and who then creates a huge building and exhibits everything from my culture. So anyway, back to the work that I created. A few months ago, I met a Singaporean friend who works in London and who works as a producer for a theatre company. And she told me that for her, every project that she does, she would try her best to make sure that the entire cast, not just the whole team, yeah, the cast, okay, is made up of a representation of what London looks like, which is 55% white people, maybe like 30% black and the rest is your others. And she said that is so important because it has to be that way. And I can't help but feel like that is the way it should be and how things are different now in that company and on the productions that I've watched by that company because of her, because she was in the room and because she was confident enough or empowered enough to make that demand. And so... It really is about who is in the room. Have we tried our utmost best to make sure that our room is always fairly represented? If in every situation we have in life where we have to step into a space, did the organisers make sure that the room is a fair representation of what that city looks like? And so that was what the work was about. The work was about who is in the room. And at the same time, because it was an online performance that used Zoom as a platform, basically it was about going into a museum of people and how every person is in some way an artifact of their culture. But how can you use that identity and create something more by becoming an agent of change when you enter a room and you realise that, okay, this room does not have sufficient representation and I can do something about it. So that was what the work was about. Mm -hmm. But you also made the decision to not be a part of the cast in that. Yeah. Um, in the play that you wrote. Yeah. 
I'm just thinking about what you said, because it keeps coming across as a lot of guilt for being a majority in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And it feels like you can't reconcile with your actual lived experience in London as a minority, as someone who has honestly faced what I think is very violent racism. Is right? it? I think it is very violent. I think when someone grabs you, it is violent. There's no doubt about that. And it feels like the guilt of being a majority in Singapore, I guess you are maybe reducing the racism that you feel. And um, yeah, I just wonder how, if at any point you've begun to acknowledge the fact that I think your experiences in London are so different from that in in Singapore. That it is two, it is two different lives that you're you're leading, right? That you can't say like, oh, because I'm a nor- my majority, sorry, in Singapore, I cannot acknowledge the fact that I've been mistreated in this country. And uh... you talk about about the play being, you know, making sure everyone thinking about who's in the room. Uh-huh. But I feel like you haven't put yourself in the room. You've also taken yourself out of the room. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now we're going into like theater analysis. Now we'll go back to our, our university years. <laughs> my, my therapist was telling me if I, because she, I mean, this is such a, because she's English and because she didn't want to like straight up say. So she was like, oh, do you understand the difference um, between guilt and shame? And I said, yes, I would think guilt is when you have done something wrong and you are acknowledging it and shame is when you have done nothing wrong but yet you still feel like you have and she said yeah yeah (laughs) because she's very polite so she's not gonna say yeah please get it out of your head and I I do acknowledge that but I think I don't know it's it's so hard lah it's so hard to feel like they are separate. You see? I feel like so much of my identity is connected. And I would like for the various strands of my identity to sort of feed into each other and inform each other about my life, the decisions I make, that it becomes so hard to compartmentalize. I don't know how to really describe it. I always feel like I've been sleeping for maybe the first 24 years of my life. And I only started becoming a bit more aware about how I factor within the world. Because the way we were brought up in Singapore is that we were taught that this is the way our lives should have to be in the way that it progresses. We go from school to school to school to school to a bigger school and then into the workforce. And so we do that unquestioningly without fully understanding who we are on this planet. So I think everything that I do now is a sort of... I guess, reconciling with my identity, which is why there's a lot of maybe shame, maybe guilt that comes along with it. 
because I have really been sleeping for 24 years of my life. I have been so cushioned in comfort that I have never really questioned it. It also sounds a bit like penance, right? You're, you know, you felt like you've you've done wrong in mm. being asleep, yeah, right for twenty four years, and then the last six, seven years have been you just doing better and then being hyper aware, so much so that maybe not acknowledging the, the wrong that has been done onto you in this, I don't know, year, ten months that you've lived, yeah, in London. It's also a really short time, right? It takes a while to figure out what's happening to you, and I think a year probably isn't enough. Mm. Mm. When my physiotherapist said that my larynx was too high, my resonators were lost, and it was because I have been speaking English for so long, I thought, okay, the fact is I have stopped speaking Mandarin for a long time. Maybe if I started doing that again, I can find that back. And so I went on this desperate search to speak Chinese to people and I even met up with a friend's landlord who's Chinese just so I can speak Chinese to her. (laughs) So anyway, I followed a lot of Chinese organisations in London and one of them called Hackney Chinese Community Centre, they were organising a vaccination drive for undocumented migrants in London and they were looking for translators. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. It all happened really quickly over four weekends in July and August. And I think that gave me such a huge source of comfort. Because my identity was never questioned. My presence was never questioned. The way I sounded was never questioned. And and people were so appreciative of me, even though I was essentially repeating the same Chinese words over and over again. I still felt really happy and I think that was a very important part of my healing from maybe the first few months of encountering racism here because I felt like I belonged. And so I think I just also wonder about this sense of belonging that we try so hard to fine when we are away from home and also that whole notion of whether you belonged to your home country in the first place which is really really complex and I know you feel very strongly about that even though that that was at the back of my head I never felt sad I always felt like I belonged I was in a in a huge vaccination centre there were all these strangers around me but I could I could see kinship in them. Most of them are in construction and they literally smell like my father. You see? And and the the women who would come who are normally mostly in FMB would ask you your very usual Chinese questions. Have you eaten? Where do you stay? Did you travel far to come here? Oh, how long is your shift today? Is it tiring? Oh, thank you so much for doing this. It's all these little things that I have really taken for granted when I came here. And to be able to get access to that again, I think was very important for me during my time here. Alison's struggle of finding a place of comfort in in London really resonated with me. And I think 
I think a lot about the idea of belonging to a place or a city or to a bunch of people. And growing up in Singapore, I was categorized as Indian by the state, but seen as one and also seen as one by most people, despite being half Chinese, which is the majority race in Singapore. And yes, I have the privilege of being able to code switch to Mandarin to gain entry and acceptance into the majority group. But in everyday interactions, people and institutions still othered me. I've had men tell me that they'll date me if I was Chinese, or someone even told me that I was their first colored friend. So this is going to be controversial, and I'm really only speaking for myself and my personal experience here. But I don't really have a problem with being treated as a second-class citizen in Germany. Because that's what I am. It's a lot worse to be treated like a second-class citizen in your own home. So I'm not disillusioned by the racism I experienced in Germany. I knew how terrible people, institutions, and systems could be, and I didn't expect it to be any better here. That's not to say that I'm okay with the racism I've encountered here, or when I hear about Alison's experiences in London or any of the friends I have here in Germany. And I also think that the shame and guilt that Alison moves between in her duality is something that a lot of us can probably relate to. Whether you're a majority who's become a minority in a new country. Or a minority like myself who has had an easier time blending into my new home because I am harder to place. And so listening to Alison, her struggle sounds at times like a self-inflicted penance. She's so hyper aware of her privilege back home in Singapore that she cannot yet acknowledge the wrong that has been done onto her in London. But what she's done is to show us that Even at our lowest, if we manage to seek out spaces and people who offer kinship and comfort, we can begin to heal and reconnect with ourselves. So if you're struggling with similar experiences or feelings, I really hope this conversation resonates with you and that you can feel better knowing that you're not alone. is where I am right now. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen, leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is produced and hosted by me, Nathalina Pereira, and my co-producer is Jasmine Biomi. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music, Epidemic Sound.